I do want to finally get to this Martin Luther King Jr. story published in the British press. Also, Tucker Carlson said something ridiculous. I also have some, some words of personal note. We're going to do that and a whole lot more on today's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Where to begin, where to begin, that is my conundrum for today. And if you're going to have a conundrum as a broadcaster, that's the best one. The worst one is, oh no, what do I say? Uh, but when you have enough content that you're struggling with, where do I start? Oh, well, that's a cool problem to have. Glad to have you with us on the Corey Truax Show, where we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything. I am also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets in Greenville, South Carolina, on 123 in Greenville. You're invited to Beachwood. 123 in Greenville, uh, 1030. That's when we meet on Sunday mornings. Would glad to have would be glad to have you there. And let me take a moment. Not a personal privilege, but something I need you to know. My next episode of South Carolina Connections, I really need you to go listen to it for this reason. It's a, it is an important thing. It's something I wanted to do on my show, but you know, I produce 80 minutes of content a week, and sometimes it's not enough. And so I would love to bring over what I did on South Carolina Connections and just do it again on my own show here on WLFJ 92.9 FM, Christian Talk 660. But... That would be lazy. It would be lazy to do the same thing twice. So I want to provide you with 80 minutes of new information every week. But what we talked about on the last edition of South Carolina Connections was an important conversation about social media. And not one of my deeper think pieces where we try to decide uh, whether or not we spend too much time on it or something like that. No, I, I really do bring... There's a discussion we need to have as a people about what the social media companies are whether or not they're platforms or if they're publishers. Because right now they're behaving like publishers, making editorial decisions, specifically what they've done with Steven Crowder here recently is really disturbing, a conservative commentator that they've demonetized. So I need you to go listen to that, uh, to, to that edition of, the, of South Carolina Connections and give me feedback on what it is uh, you're thinking about how we handle, how we handle these things uh, when it comes to our social media companies and the power they have. Because uh, you know, one of my big themes on this show has been over the years, Silicon Valley is way more significant to your life than Washington, D.C., and we should all recognize that. What's happening in technology, what's happening in, driver in driverless cars and automated employment, what's happening in that world and how that world has changed how we have jobs and what the jobs of the future are and how it changes our finances and investment, all of that is changing our lives more than anything Congress is doing or anything the president's doing. And specifically in there in Silicon Valley, those social media companies, they've become so fundamental to what we know, what information we get, because we're all getting our information from our Facebook feeds, our Twitter feeds. So uh, go listen to that episode. I, I'm about to do that thing I didn't want to do and just tell you the entire episode. But go do it, South Carolina Connections, wherever you're listening to my podcast, you can find it there, South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax from the Palmetto Family Podcast Network. Let's go ahead and start with listener feedback. We got a little bit more. Uh, we did an, almost an entire show last week in that vein. I, I only want to cover one listener feedback question this week. It's from a guy named James. He's never written into the show. He doesn't seem happy with me. Apparently a couple weeks ago, 
I said something about not being a fan of Ken Ham. Uh, that's the Answers in Genesis guy. And uh, James wants to know, do I not do I not think six day creation is a fundamental part of the faith? Like last week, Zach left a voicemail at the Anchor app and asked, basically, can you be a Christian and believe the wrong thing about homosexuality? Well, my answer was there. Well, if if you're genuinely following Jesus, you're going to have a mind that eventually, or at some point after your conversion, your mind is going to conform to Jesus' position, to the Bible's position on homosexuality. So maybe it doesn't happen immediately, but it will happen if you are genuinely of the faith. So James writes in and says, he, he wants to know, after making some statements, he wants to know, do I not think that you you need to believe in six-day creation to be orthodox, to be inside the faith. So here we go. I suspect, because I got some people that wrote in about the rapture as well. That was not particularly popular with everybody. But I had a good friend, Cody. He wrote in and was very encouraging about my rapture position because I'm a partial preterist. But here we go, on on Genesis, on creation. To answer James' question clearly, no. To be in the Christian faith, I would not argue that you need to believe that the days in Genesis are are literally six of them. I don't think we need to believe that as a fundamental part of the faith. Fundamentals of the faith are more things like there is one God, and it is the God of the Bible as revealed in the Bible. His, he gives us a covenant name. His name is Yahweh. That that God is in three persons, the Father, Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son of the Holy Spirit came to earth in a physical body. Jesus, he lived perfectly. He never sinned. He, was a phys- he wasn't a physical manifestation. He actually was God in the flesh. Uh, that he literally died after living a perfect life. He was literally murdered, executed by the Romans and the Jews, and that he literally, physically, bodily came out of the grave. Uh, that the, these are the fundamentals. Uh, that God... Uh, applies the righteousness of Jesus to the believer, to those who repent and believe and follow Jesus. He applies the righteousness of Jesus to us, and he applies our sin to Jesus on the cross so that cosmically the wrath of God is satisfied in punishing sin on the cross. There's other things, I guess, that are fundamental to the faith, but whether or not these days of Genesis are literal, uh, it's not. Uh, it's not fundamental to the faith. If someone thinks the, the days are ages, long periods of time, millions of years. Like if someone thinks the earth is millions of years old and the universe is 14 billion years old, that's that has not put them outside of the Christian faith if they can affirm all those other things I mentioned a moment ago. For my own position, as James asked as well, I got to tell you, man, when people ask me, what do you think about age of the earth? And uh, what, what do you think about you know, whether or not ge- parts of Genesis are literal? This is how I've been answering the question lately. I've been answering the question... I don't know. I do know all the fundamentals. I know the fundamentals of the faith. I rest in Christ. I rest in my own salvation. But as for Genesis, man, I don't know. There is an argument I would not go go totally with from a guy like, uh, uh, is William Lane Craig in this area? I think he is. Or he, he would say the entire first 11 chapters of Genesis are allegorical or they're symbolic that there is no real person until Abraham. Like, he's the real first human. That Adam, Eve, Noah, Babylon, like all of that stuff, Babel, all that is symbols. I, I don't go that far, but um, I, I will just admit general confusion 
you know, I, I talked when I talked about the rapture last week. You do have to ask why parts of the Bible are written. And so the, the people who give me the rapture from that passage in First Corinthians, well, when we go to, or that's Second Corinthians, either way, when we go to it, it's clear that that paragraph was actually about comfort. Paul wasn't actually trying to give the reader a timeline of how the end of days would happen. That wasn't the point of the passage. He was trying to give comfort to people who had loved ones die before them, and so we should read it in the context of the purpose. And when you go to Genesis, you recognize, well, this is getting written. This is probably hard for everybody to grasp when you, if you don't grow up knowing this fact, but Genesis is written by Moses after the events of the Exodus. So he's with, uh, he's got, you know, he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, there's the ten plagues, you have the death angel, tenth plague, and Pharaoh finally says, get out of here, go, they go to the Red Sea, uh, you go across uh, the Red Sea, the, the Egyptian army is uh, is buried in the Red Sea, and then they you know, they wander in the wilderness, before start starting the wandering in the wilderness, there's, G- there's Moses going up to Sinai, it is in this period of time that Genesis is written. And for that matter, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the design of Genesis is Moses giving an origin story to the people of God. Not that it's not literal, but the purpose of it was to say to Israel, his followers, this is who we are in distinction to the people around us. So all of these pagans around us, they have their origin story, or here's here's our origin story as God's people. And you can even find that a little bit in the um, in the narrative of Genesis, just as an example. They're going around in a culture that would worship the sun, moon, and stars. So they, they would have a god of the sun, a god, uh, like I believe the Egyptians even called that god Ra. And when Moses writes the narrative of creation, he he calls them uh, he calls the sun and the moon the greater light and the lesser light. That's act, it's, we don't know the the context in which he's writing. We don't know that he's making a very big statement when he doesn't even give them a proper name. He doesn't even call them the sun, the moon. He doesn't even call them the the proper names that the culture around them would call them. He he minimizes them. He says they're just the, they're the greater light and the lesser light, and he's minimizing them because what he's saying is. The people around us worship the greater light and the lesser light as as gods, but what we know is our God made those. Our God made the greater light and the lesser light, and therefore he is the one God over all. And so you get into Genesis and recognize, well, it's really a narrative to let the people of Israel know God's promises and covenants and nature of who he is in relation to creation and themselves. And so the, the purpose of that book isn't even to give you an origin story. Genesis is not there to be a science book or a history book for the beginning of all things. And so, no, James, because it's not the purpose of the book, it is not a necessity to believe in six literal days. And when you read the Genesis account, knowing its purpose, it changes the burden you place on the book to give you scientific and historical information. Thank you, James for the question, uh, it, but no, I don't find six-day creation to be a core issue to the faith. Next, let's go ahead and start working through some of these other stories, I, just some of these smaller stories I wanted to get to. Uh, and then after the break, I want to get to this David Platt and him praying for the president. Uh, just some fun stuff to finish off this first segment. Uh, number one, very interesting. In New York City, there's new type of bar, po- bar popping up. The first one was called Getaway. 
it's a sober bar. It's a dry bar. Because apparently millennials, very concerned about their mental health and their physical health, are drinking less of everything. Millennials are drinking more wine than previous generations, but way less beer and way less hard stuff. And the uh, this, this really started driving out of first Silicon Valley, now getting into New York City, this idea of bars who don't serve alcohol, because people wanted the social setting, but wanted to stop feeling the pressure to drink. There was one person quoted in the story from CNN that it was becoming very normal because you would go out for drinks after work when your social circle and he just noticed everyone was having two or three drinks every day and that's not good it wasn't good for their health and so people just wanted to stop drinking so much uh, and he said he was going to a, he went to a work party here recently and like half the people weren't drinking at all so take that for what it's worth i take that as somewhat encouraging that it seems like my generation and younger are making decisions around their health that hey uh, maybe, like, they're not anti-alcohol, and I'm not even like, anti-alcohol, I'm just saying a little less wouldn't hurt for everybody, uh, just in terms of the how much people are drinking. And so that's becoming a movement, even in the secular world, uh, to have people drink less. There's a couple other quick ones I wanted to get, you know what, we need to take a break. Yep, I gotta do it, we take a break. When we come back, David Platt uh, had the President of the United States just drop by his church, I want to give you all the details on that story because I think there's some misinformation around it and then give you my opinion as there was lots of people's opinions floating around on the internet regarding David Platt praying for the president. We'll do that and a whole lot more when we return for the remainder of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you here. If you would be so kind, find me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and like me there. Send me a friend request. You can get on the Facebook fan page there on Facebook as well, and find the show on demand. Share it with others as we are now seeing some genuine growth over at the Anchor app and all over the place, and we are doing that not because I'm good. I'm like a B-, minus. maybe on my best show. I'm a B+. Plus. I'm a B-plus talent. But we are growing, I suspect, because you guys continue to hit the share button, because you are hitting the social media world and maybe telling somebody about the show. And I wish I could express it to you. I wish I could express what that means. I just got a, an email a couple weeks ago from a listener, Adam, who wanted to tell me something uh, about what I said on the my, my other show, the South Carolina Connections from Palmetto Family Council. And his opening paragraph was so flattering. Like it was like reading a, a a letter of recommendation about yourself. I remember lead, reading my letters of recommendation for law school. I got one. F- I got a couple letters of recommendation for law school. I, I should have gone, maybe. Uh, no, I should have. Uh, I was accepted to University of South Carolina's law school and also Liberty University. I'm definitely glad I didn't go to Liberty's now. But uh, in any event, uh, I I remember reading my letters of recommendation, going, "Who are they talking about? I am not nearly this smart or charming." Because letters of recommendation kind of gush about you. And Adam was like, hey, man, really like your tone and how you have respect for everybody, even no matter if you disagree. And it's just really nice. So thank you for all the encouragement, for sharing the show, and for finding it on social media. You know, that Instagram following is continuing to grow, and slowly, but it is growing. And uh, there's fun stuff there, guys. You can follow along. I like following along with you as well. I follow a lot of you on Instagram, and we get to share each other's lives digitally. It's a lot of fun. So... Uh, please do that. All right, here we go. There was uh, two weeks ago, 
Yeah, I think that's right. A little bit more than two weeks ago, maybe. There was a big story that hit the Christian world, and I want to give some commentary on it. First, here's the facts of the case. David Flatt is pastor of McLean Bible Church in um, uh, in Virginia. I listen to David Flatt every week. Uh, he's He is one of the podcasts I listen to every single week. It's called Radical with David Platt. I read his book, Radical. Then I read his second book, Radical Church. I have been a follower of Platt since 2010. So that's nine years that I have listened to every sermon he put out uh, and read everything he's put out. I am a David Platt guy. I'm a huge fan. I think he is one of the bright spots of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's a I think the third or fourth most important voice in American Christianity. This is a guy that if you do read him and listen to his sermons, you will be convicted. You will think you have too much, that you live in too much opulence, that you are not generous enough for what you are not giving to the world from your physical blessings. But also, this is a guy who spends his own time going to the Himalayas, who has spent a lot of time in some of the most some of the most desolate and impoverished parts of the world sharing the gospel in dangerous places in the Middle East, a guy whose wife and him have adopted, I think, two kids and are about to adopt a third. Like, he preaches the truth, then he lives the truth. David Platt has a life that is above reproach. I love me some David Platt, and I am grateful for him. Now, he pastors that church in Virginia. He was originally the pastor of the the church at Brook Hills in, in Birmingham, Alabama. So that's David Platt. David Platt, as he reports it, says he went backstage after his sermon a couple Sunday mornings ago, and they were about to go into the Lord's Supper, his church, like Beechwood Church, where I, where I go and where I'm one of the elders, they do communion, the Lord's Supper, every week. And someone comes up to David Platt backstage and says, the President of the United States people have called, and he's on the way here, and he wants to pray with the congregation. There seems to be a little bit of a crossing of communication because Trump's people who've talked about this said he wanted to come and pray for the families of the victims of the shooting of Virginia Beach. So that same day or the day before, there was a shooting in Virginia Beach, and Trump's people said that was his design, was to come and be a, go pray with this megachurch because McLean Bible Church is gigantic. It's a huge church in Virginia. David Platt, just as a pastor, he brings a lot of people because he's I mean, he is, he's church famous. You know, he's got a New York Times bestsellers and all that stuff. But it does appear that the way McLean heard it is that he wanted to come and be prayed over. The president wanted to come and be a part of that. And so as Platt reports it, as he, he, he wrote a letter, uh, where, where I want to say he reports it, he wrote a letter giving an explanation uh, that it became a split decision, like a split-second decision, like the president of the United States is on the way. I tell you, I, I, I don't envy... Platt's situation. The President of the United States is on the way. He's one of the most divisive figures of the last hundred years. And he's got a hard decision to make. He comes here, this is a an unbelieving person who wants to come into your church, but he has a he has a position of political power. Uh, what, what do you do? And so Platt's decision was we're going to follow the uh, the admonition, the direction of First Timothy, and we're going to pray for those in authority. It's literally a command in the Bible: pray for those in the author- pray for those in authority. You can even go to First Peter and apply the concept of honor the king. So First Peter says, honor the king. Well, we don't have kings, but we do have politicians, and they're part of the political power. So we want to show honor. You want to pray for your leaders. This is a fundamental, easy Christian doctrine and thing to do. And so. 
Uh, Trump comes up on the stage. David Platt prays over him a very awesome prayer. He includes the gospel in the prayer. He talks about how he, he prays that the president would know how much the God of the Bible loves him, that Jesus died for his sins. And it's reported David Platt said he got to talk to the president backstage, and it was a gospel-related conversation. So he prays over him, and then the president doesn't say anything at all. Uh, and after David Platt has a very biblical prayer, the language of that prayer was filled with Bible, filled with the gospel, and then prayed, praying for the things that you would pray for for political leaders, for wisdom and for righteousness and for right decision-making. That's the stuff you would pray. Trump goes off the stage. That was the end of that episode. Later, David Platt writes a letter, not an apology, but saying everything I just said to you because some of his members were upset by it. Some of his members were upset with having the president there and and receiving that prayer. And so uh, I have a uh, I guess I should continue with more facts of the case before I give my opinion. Uh, so other facts of the case then are some Christian leaders that really are primarily Church of Trump people. They're not really Christian leaders. They worship President Trump and secondarily down the line somewhere they like Jesus. Uh, they criticize Platt like crazy for even issuing a letter that was explaining we didn't want to we didn't want to cross any lines here we didn't want to make the gospel politicized i want to protect the fact that the gospel is not american that the gospel is not republican that we are not endorsing the president we're not endorsing his policies this is what the letter said we're not endorsing the president his policies or his party but we are following a biblical mandate and platt did by the way he followed the biblical mandate that's what we do as christians and it, it, he should have reacted, ooh, about to say, does this better be your attitude? If you were, if you were super pro-praying for Trump, you better be pro-this. If Barack Obama rolled up to that church a few years ago and wanted prayer, you better believe he should have prayed for him in the exact same way. Because D Donald Trump and Barack Obama are equally pagans. They're both pagan people and both need prayer. And so Platt handled the. So now we're out of the facts. Now let's get into my opinion. Platt handled it, I say, 99% the way I would. If the president is on the spot saying, I, I'm coming and I want to be prayed over, okay. I mean, again, it's a biblical mandate. I'm supposed to be doing that every day anyway. I'm supposed to be praying for the president as a, as a leader. So, okay, come on in, let's do it. And Platt nailed it better than, any, than I could have, using the biblical language in the prayer, even kind of sharing the gospel with a pagan president in the prayer. That's great. One thing he did that I wouldn't have done, he's not getting on the stage. Donald Trump is not getting on the stage. The guy who was on Playboy covers with his three wives and his rampant adultery, the innovator of strip clubs inside casinos, no. And not, not only that, I mean, Platt has to consider this, and this was part of my calculation on why I wouldn't have put him on the stage. Platt is big on missions. He used to run the largest mission, organ, mission agency in the world, his church does a great job with uh, refugees in the northern Virginia area. Uh, they, they work heavily with Somali refugees, uh, and so they do a lot of work with folks from around the world. In their congregation, as big as it is, and being in that part of the world, Washington, D.C. is a lot like a New York City or an L.A. or a Miami. The entire world is there. So you have nationalities, all the nations represented in those areas, and his church represents dozens of nations. And so when you recognize 
that this is also a man in the last year who called a lot of their a lot of countries s-hole countries it is likely the case there's a person sitting in the congregation looking at a man who called his country an s-hole country and so if you are david platt you do have to think one of my people i mean i'm the shepherd of this pasture this is a man who has insulted some of my sheep in their their nations. Yeah, you want to be sensitive to some of that. So I totally understand that Platt would want to clarify that to his own people. I I don't mind him clarifying something we need to clarify, that Christianity isn't Republican. The fact that some people are comfortable with associating the two is so crazy and unhelpful to the biblical message. And so I'm Platt handled, I think, both things about as well as you could. Doing the prayer and then putting out the statement on clarifying what it means to pray for the president. Last part of this. One of the reactions came from the Pope of the Church of Trump. Uh, maybe he's not the Pope, but he's like, he's one of the main bishops. The, the Pope of the Church of Trump is Robert Jeffress. I mean, that, that's a guy who worships an altar with Trump on it. Uh, the, he's he's a wannabe pastor down in the Dallas area. But then there is Jerry Falwell Jr., who is a low IQ person, uh, who's the president of Liberty University. And J- Jerry Falwell Jr. tweets about David Platt, because David Platt puts out a letter that says, to my congregation, for those of you who are upset about it or hurt by it, here's our rationale for why we did it and why we prayed for the president. Jerry Falwell Jr. puts out, a tweet that says, some pastors need to grow a pair. So that's a vulgar thing. And he said, like David Platt. And by the way, again, David Platt, a guy who preaches the gospel in countries that will murder him if he's found out. David Platt, who spends weeks long hiking parts of Nepal with no internet, with not great food. He has to boil all his water, sharing the gospel with people who literally have never heard of Jesus. Yeah, he's the one that needs to grow a pair, Jerry, as you Oh, gosh, I could go off. Jerry Falwell Jr. is so... There is no sign of his life that he's not a pagan. He has one God. His God is Donald Trump, and if he has a second God, it's the dollar. Because Jerry Falwell Jr., he was called out by Christianity. I mean, the the Christian leaders, genuine Christian leaders, they called out Falwell for that garbage move. And some of his tweets back were, you know, I'm not a pastor, I'm a business leader, real estate developer, I raise money. And so he's got this haughty, prideful attitude that just shows where his... His, uh, his priorities lie. And it's anywhere but Christianity. It's anywhere but biblical teaching. So that's the last part. You know, I, I, I am going to say it. Listen, Liberty University is becoming a problem because of Jerry Falwell Jr. That guy needs to be removed. The Board of Trustees needs to be removed, needs to remove the guy. He's embarrassing. But he's got the name. You know, Falwell Sr. started the place. He was pastor of the church there, Thomas Road, and then he was the the president of the university, after he passed away, the sons split those duties. Jonathan Falwell's the pastor of the church, and he seems solid. Jerry Falwell Jr. has gone off into insanity and paganism, and the board of trustees really needs to do something about him. You know, one of my best friends, I mean, Heath, he's on the show sometimes. He's a Liberty grad. Heath is brilliant. Heath uh, Heath is a guy who got a great education at Liberty, and this is a guy I still admire, like, the guy can put down a book in a day. Like, he can pick up a 300-some-odd-page book in, in a day, read it, 
remember it, understand it, explain it to you. Like it's, it's incredible the amount of information he can put down and digest. And I know some brilliant people from Liberty. I, do, I mean that. I also know some real morons from Liberty that got degrees. Because what, what Liberty did to grow, to become the largest Christian university in the world, is they let everyone in. You know, I work in higher education. I work up at North Greenville. There are kids every year that I know that we reject, we deny. We show that the data says that they're not going to be able to cut it academically at our level, and Liberty just says, come on in, you're going to be brilliant and awesome here. This is how they've gotten so big, is some of the standards they set at the admission level are not all that impressive. Now again, I know brilliant people who have gone to Liberty. I also know some not brilliant people who have gone to Liberty. And because when your goal, as Jerry Falwell Jr. puts out there, is numbers and money and numbers and money, well, then you make some compromises along the way. And if here's Liberty, and it has all this opportunity. It has all this opportunity to be this incredible educational institution for the kingdom of God's principles. It has this opportunity, and it, it has a great deal. Liberty University has met this, to put good Christian thinkers out into every part of the economy. That's good. But he's an embarrassment. And really need to do something about that guy. Uh, so that's the Platt story. That was the big uh, controversy in the Christian world for a little while. Platt handled it right in both ways. He should have prayed for the president. I just wouldn't have let him on stage. And trying to explain it to his congregation, knowing that some of his congregation would be hurt by that, that was also a good thing. So he did he did both well. Okay, what are we going to do next? Uh, how about we go, you know, since we're talking about colleges, let me do, get you this story from the New York Times. The title is, The Anti-College is on the Rise. And it's a story, and you should go read this, by the way, to the New York Times. It's, it's really interesting. It talks a lot about these gap year programs that are becoming very popular. Students not leaving high school and going straight to college, but spending a year doing, doing some kind of program where they are learning out in the wilderness, or they go to a new city. They're somewhat expensive programs, but they're becoming more popular. And they focus on one in particular called Outer Coast. Outer Coast is up in Alaska, and students can go up there instead of college. They can spend a, a couple summers up there. And they are teaching them stuff that the colleges used to teach. So they're teaching, you know, they're reading Plato. They're reading Aristotle. They're reading the classics. They're doing the Constitution, talking through the Enlightenment and philosophy. They're doing stuff that we all we should learn in college in any kind of liberal arts model. But, uh, and, so, and some kids are replacing college. They're not doing college. They're going to these programs like Outer, Co Outer Coast because they're looking at the college world. They're looking at its costs and the diminishing benefits you get from a college degree. And there are people trying to pop up now being innovative with other higher education solutions. One of them is Outer Coast. You can find more on them, by the way, at outercoast.org. But the, the story about them is really interesting with uh, from the New York Times. The issue for these situ the issue for these organizations is this. They're not going to meet the accrediting agency requirements. So here's these the other educational models are popping up saying, all right, so you don't want a four-year liberal arts model. You don't, you don't want to spend two years taking prerequisites in general educations and you in general education courses. You just want to learn a skill and get out, but the skill you want, maybe it's not your local technical college. Well, you can come learn that from us, and we'll get you out. Well, there's no room 
inside the Department of Education's accreditation agencies to give accreditation. And so people become skeptical, wondering, maybe I'll learn the skills and I'll learn what I need to know, but will anyone care about the certificate that I get? And this is happening to Outer Coast, and it's happening with all kinds of innovators. You know, around in Greenville, we used to have a place called the Iron Yard. I think there's a place in Greenville now called... Oh, I forgot what they called. Uh, nope, I'm not going to remember. But it's a great place where you can go and learn lots of coding, HTML. You can you can learn how to do web design and doing the back end of websites. These are the things employers need. You can go learn those skills and get a certificate, but it's not accredited. And so then you have to go about trying to make that argument to employers that your non-accredited degree means you're ready to come work for them and you know what you're doing. And so while I am appreciative of innovation and education, education is one of those things that really needs disruption. We need disruptors to come along and start causing problems for, for traditional higher education to make traditional higher education more innovative and flexible. But to do that, we are also going to need politicians who are willing to step up and get these, get these accrediting agencies to recognize the work these organizations are doing, or we need employers to stop caring. We need employers to go ahead and just say, we care whether or not you can do what we need you to do. We don't care if Clemson or Ohio State are, is on your, is, or South Carolina is on your resume. We care if you know what you're doing. And so I love the innovation that's happening there. You can go read more about it. I think it's it's a conversation we need to be having more of. Uh, and if, especially if you're a conservative out there, wouldn't you like to weaken the control the very secular and left-wing universities have over our culture? Wouldn't you like that? Well, one of the ways to do that is to now allow for some innovation and then making sure that innovation can can go through proper accrediting so people actually want to pursue it. We've got a lot more stories we want to do when we return, so stick with us for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show over on WLFJ 92.9 FM. Glad you're there. Also, you can get the show on demand wherever you get podcasts, and I hope you will. Let's start here. If you did not see... It wasn't covered all that well in the American media, but in British media, it got lots of play. It probably shows some kind of bias in the American media. We do know the American media is quite biased. But the fact they did not cover this at all reveals that further. A intrepid reporter went to some MLK-archived information because uh, some of the information you get in... Uh, how should I explain this? Oh, here's how to do it. So... FBI investigations, when you're doing criminal investigations, and if you don't know, uh, the FBI actually did investigate uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He was suspected of some things, and he ended up not being guilty of a lot of the things he was suspected of. But there were investigative recordings done of Martin Luther King Jr., and those things are protected. Like, you don't just get access to those except for many, many years after. I think it's like 50 years. And so fairly recently some of the archived investigative recordings and investigative documents about Martin Luther King Jr. came became public. And an intrepid reporter who was published in a British newspaper found that there were some things we just don't we didn't know about Martin Luther King Jr. For example, there is a recording that I did not listen to, but several sources verify that what we're hearing is a woman 
being sexually assaulted, raped, actually, in a hotel room, not by Martin Luther King Jr., but someone else that the, the tape does identify, but that Martin Luther King Jr. is in the room, he's laughing, and he's encouraging the behavior. Some of those other investigative documents show that while we knew that Martin Luther King Jr. was unfaithful to his wife, he was prolifically unfaithful to his wife. It was, there were a lot of women. And so, you have this really significant person in history, inarguably, who had a positive effect on history, but then also has what is clearly really morally egregious things like what appears to be some sexual assault, then some uh, taking part or at least condoning some sexual assault and or rape, and then his own massive problem with just a ton of infidelity. And, And so this guy who brings it up in the British press, he got some pushback. It was basically a, how dare you? How dare you sully the reputation of Martin Luther King Jr.? You're, and he actually got called a racist. You're just a racist trying to ruin this civil rights leader's reputation. And all this guy did was release information that's true. Like, I feel bad for the guy. He, he just did what, what reporters are supposed to do, find new information and put it out there. So here's where I, I land on this. I feel like there's something instructive we need to get to. Folks out for whatever reason, on the social justice side, they're mad about it. They're mad that anyone would bring up any of this information about Martin Luther King Jr., that it is slanderous towards him. And it feels like this is a good instructive moment for everyone to come together and recognize how we view significant people in history. So, for example, this out on the secular progressive left over the last few years, we've been getting... More and more of the founders were racists and there were misogynists, and uh, we need to tear down their statues and stop naming things after George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. And you get no context of history when you talk about them. And so now I have this opportunity for folks on the left to recognize well, same thing here at Martin Luther King Jr. He did some terrible things, but we also can't deny his significance on history. So my point here is really about how we manage our history as Americans. We kind of just need to grow up. Just grow up and recognize everybody that we admire, almost all of them are going to have some flaws. And some of them are major. They are deeply morally disturbing flaws. But that doesn't mean we whitewash them out of history and pretend they didn't do something major. Instead, the way you grow up and become mature and judge history, read history, is recognize that they were significant. And part of what their significance was was positive. So did Thomas Jefferson own some slaves, and is that terrible? Well, yes and yes. That's horrid. He also wrote the Declaration of Independence. And so we can celebrate him for his significance in history and at the same time, have the moral clarity and mental flexibility to recognize, but he also did a morally egregious thing. And then at the same time, we can say Martin Luther King Jr. was so significant to the civil rights movement and also as a important counterbalance to win out over Malcolm X. The Malcolm X method of, of conflict and violence would have led the country down a darker path. 
Martin Luther King's strategy in the civil rights movement of nonviolence and peace, that led to a more peaceful path towards equality. And so we respect him, and we love him for that, we honor him for that, and then also, we recognize he also, his history with women is egregious, it's terrible. I mean, even in the Christian world, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. is taught some heretical things. I mean, remember he's a pastor, but he taught some stuff way outside of orthodoxy. We can still recognize that he did good work, that he's an important part of history. This And this is all that requires. We just all need some mental flexibility, some maturity to recognize there are good and bad to everybody, and we want to recognize the good where we can. Okay, so there's that MLK story. If you didn't read it, I mean, it's disturbing. And if you want to go out there and find it, it's pretty easy to find in that British newspaper. Uh, let's go ahead and do this one. I want to play for you something from Tucker Carlson that he said on his show recently that blows my mind. Tucker Carlson's on Fox. He's not a particularly conservative guy. He's more of a a nationalist than he is a conservative. And that's there's that's a distinction that's important. And he'll prove that here with this clip. So let me play you this from Tucker Carlson, and I will respond. We can navigate the changes ahead if we embrace economic patriotism and make American workers our highest priority, rather than continuing to cater to the interests of companies and people with no allegiance to America. The words you just heard are from, embrace yourself here, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. It's true. Yesterday, Warren released what she called her plan for economic patriotism. Amazingly, that's pretty much what it is, economic patriotism. It's just pure, old-fashioned economics, how to preserve good-paying American jobs. She sounds like Donald Trump at his best. Whoa. There's Tucker Carlson, who is a big Trump person, saying that Elizabeth Warren's economic plan, the way she explains it, sounds like a really good Trump plan. I just want to clarify something for everybody, because Elizabeth Warren's people probably do like that. You know, She says, we need some economic patriotism. And then there's Trump who would say the same thing. It's all, it's all about uh, America-first policy inside the business world. I know this is not popular with a ton of people, but I'm, well, what do I care? I've never particularly cared if something was popular. This is an important distinction. You know that my economic philosophy is not America first? Did you know that free market capitalism is not America first? Conservative free markets and limited government policies aren't America first. That's ideas first. And that's what I think we would be better served as if we were first loyal to ideas. Let me say it this way. Where America isn't the bastion of freedom, where, it's, where there's a country that's more free, more capitalist, more free market, more protections for ideas like patents, that's one of the revolutionary things that we've done, I will have no loyalty to this plot of ground I'm loyal, to, I'm loyal to America in whatever way that I am because of the ideas that built it. And if, for, if there's like a revolution in Brazil or China or I don't know, somewhere else, and they have American ideas, these ideas that were once American, and they're doing it better, I'll go there because I'm not loyal to this plot of ground. Let's be loyal to ideas. And so while Tucker Carlson says this sounds like Donald Tr- Donald Trump at his best that we're for American jobs, what I would say is this this Amer- that is Donald Trump and Elizabeth Warren at their worst, where they are not for loyalty to the idea 
of freedom for people, they become loyal to a tribe and to a team, and that tribe and team is their country. Ultimately, what's best for human flourishing, even in your own country, is these ideas. It's, it's, they've proved themselves throughout history. Free markets have been better for people. And the, this, this, there's something that Carlson's missing there. That the, it, I guess it is the case with Trump and Warren and for nationalists generally to value their country over all else, where it's probably healthier for all of us to find out what are the best ideas I'm going to be I'm going to be loyal to the best ideas and whatever ideas are best I want for my country. If your country has bad ideas, don't feel loyal to your country. Find the best ideas and be loyal to those. All right, in our final few minutes together. I am recording before I leave for the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, I went 2 years ago out to Phoenix for the convention and I went to Dallas last year for it. This year it's in Birmingham. And I am going to probably record a bonus mini-episode when I get back to let you know what's going on at the largest Christian denomination uh, in uh, in the country. I mean, we are 15 million people strong in the SBC, and it is shrinking, but still the largest of the denominations. we got some big things to tackle, specifically uh, moving forward and how we're going to deal with some verified sexual abuse issues in the church. So there's a lot happening I wish I could have waited to record till after the convention for this episode. I just couldn't. But I'll, I'm probably going to do something in the bonus world for that. So if you're listening to this live on WLFJ 92.9 FM, make sure you go to the podcast. You can find it at CoreyTruax.com or anywhere you get podcasts. There's likely going to be a bonus episode to let you know what happened at the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention in Birmingham. In my last little bit here, picking from like six things I had left, I want to play for you a short clip that I loved, just loved this. I found it on one of the Facebook sites that I go to called The Baptist Review. Uh, and it, it lays out a, politi- a, a theological position I hold, and we will uh, play, I'm going to play that for you now, and then I'll respond. Uh, this is from one of my favorite commentators. Her name is Rachel Jankovic. Okay, so essentially I believe that there are two qualifications for any woman preacher. And the first one would be that she know and love the Word of God, that she be a diligent reader of the Word of God. And then the second would be that she delight to obey Jesus, that she delights to be in total submission to Him as He has revealed Himself in His Word. And so when you put those two very reasonable qualifications together for any woman who wants to preach, you find out that oh snap, there's no such thing as a qualified woman preacher because there's no such thing as a woman who delights to be in submission to Jesus, who reads his word, who comes away thinking, I'm the one who ought to be preaching this word. And I would explain the passages to you, except I assume this is a co-ed audience, so maybe you should go find a qualified man preacher to tell you what the scripture has to say about that. I just love this woman. That was so clear, so clear and so clever. Uh, so there's an unpopular position. Probably another thing. I played this just partly. We're going to have to deal with this at the SBC as well. Because Beth Moore has come along and seems like she's she is pushing up against the line on women and preaching. Uh, so let me give you a quick thing here. I'm a complementarian. That is my theological position uh, in the role of genders. Which that, this, here's what that means. I also It's not just my position. I believe it's what the Bible teaches, and that's why it's my position. That... Men and women are equal in honor in the eyes of God. Men and women are also distinct, and their roles are distinct. Their roles are distinct in the household, and their roles are distinct in the church. And the model that First Timothy, and I believe Titus also, 
Oh, there's one more. I can't. Uh, but definitely in First Timothy, Paul makes clear that the preaching of the word and its authority, the, the authority that comes to preaching of the word, is from men. And I'm not sorry for saying so. And this young lady who did this fun, fun, very funny video, she's she's right. There, there's all kinds of very significant roles for women to play in ministry. Preaching and pastoring just doesn't happen to be one of them that God has set up as the Bible lays out in First Timothy. Uh, that that is uh, it, it, that is not a role a woman is to play. That again has nothing to do with her honor and role and uh, role in the church as being of less honor than men. But you know this is a this is a distinction in doctrine that I, I mean I consider brothers and sisters in the Lord who think differently on this as brothers and sisters, and we're going to be in eternity together, and we're fine. But it is a thing that we got to settle if you're like going to be in any part of a church. Like there's some things you do have to know that you agree on going into a church setting. Like I would include this like when you're thinking about marriage as well, theologically. There's some things that, yeah, that person is in the faith, but if you don't agree on some of these things, uh, let's go with like a, like pedo-baptism, b- baptizing babies. Well, if, if you're going to be in a church and you're going to have a problem on Sundays when they're baptizing babies, you probably want to be in that church. Uh, if, you're gonna get, if you're getting married, like you probably need to discuss, are we baptizing our babies? Like b- before you get married, you probably need to settle that. Same thing with roles of women. That's a thing before you get involved with a church or a ministry, like or any kind of relationship you're going to have. You probably need to figure that out and where you stand. And uh, this woman laid it out really well and whimsically that there is no place biblically for a woman to take the role of pastor or preacher. I'm heading off to the Southern Baptist Convention here in just a bit. So keep an eye out on your podcast feed for report from what comes there. I would love your feedback on this episode and anything you've heard here. You can leave a voicemail on the Anchor app. You can also support the show financially if you would be so inclined. Just go to the Anchor app and you can uh, set up something regular to donate to the show. And I would highly appreciate it if you would. You can also email the show at CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com. You tell me what you think about what I, what I think, and I would love to feature that on the show as well. We'll be back with another new edition next week. And until then, everybody, peace and love. <laughs>